What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver of the Washington Post, and I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, mercifully, we have reached the end of our five-week extensive coverage of The Last Dance. This will be our final episode, our recap episode. Um, and I think really what we're going to try to do here, Michael, is get into some of the bigger picture takeaways, maybe the legacy of this project. Was it good? Was it bad? What could have been better? Um, our favorite moments. And I want to start with you with kind of the, the biggest picture question that there is. We got a, an email from a guy who refers to himself as this guy. He emailed us <laughs> openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And he writes, was The Last Dance really a documentary or was it an autobiography? The director has on numerous occasions said that he was not restricted by Jordan, but it's pretty obviously colored by Jordan's influence. I really enjoyed The Last Dance, but throughout it, watching it the entire time, I just kept thinking it felt like his version of events. Um, and I think a lot of people shared that thought, Michael. Of course, we talked about the the role that his advisors played as executive producers uh, and the role that he had in uh, you know picking the director and, and kind of all aspects of the creative process. So this is uh, one of many criticisms that I saw develop uh, over the course of this project. And so what I want to do to, to answer this guy's question, Michael, is do you have a, you know, a firm thought one way or the other on that? Was it too far into autobiography territory? And then big picture, I mean, you're a guy who reads a lot of sports books. You're a guy who watches a lot of sports documentaries and everything else. If you had to give this thing a final grade, um, if you had to give it, you know, the Siskel and Ebert thumbs down or a one to 10 scale or maybe use the sources five mics, however you want to grade this thing, um, where did you come away uh, on the last dance as a whole? Three and a half mics for the last dance. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I, that was a great call by you. I, I, the five mic is the five mic uh, grading system is unimpeachable. Um, I think there are a few different ways to just judge or even look at the last dance. I mean, I personally have a difficult time separating it from this period of interruption in which it was released. I mean. You could look at it as like a nostalgia bath that you, you that gave you immense joy and helped take your mind off of everything that was going on. And if you do it that way, if you look at it that way, then that's terrific. And Wait, the, I, I the don't... warm bubble bath of the Clinton years. <laughs> Exa- sure, exactly. <laughs> that's one way to put it. Um, and if you want to look at it like that, then that's great. And uh, I don't really think that you could even be too critical i mean it was it was fun it it provided joy i personally loved watching it every monday night with my wife and teaching her things and reacting to uh uh, her reactions because she didn't know a lot of this stuff and i knew almost all of it um i even liked some of the revisionist history from the like entertaining supporting characters like horace grant and ron harper and isaiah thomas and peyton and Reggie Miller, Barkley, Patrick Ewan, and so on. Um, but I also kind of see the other way to look at it. And, uh, you know, if you wanted more self-introspection, if you wanted a, li- a wider look at who Jordan was and who he is today and uh, maybe him explaining things in his own words a little more clearly than he did and a little more deeply than he did, it would have been better. I mean, I personally have a little... It's like it's difficult to even call this a documentary. I I don't really even want to use that word because it was I mean, it's about this guy. It's ostensibly about a team and a run. But it's like it's 
that uh, that title is just so misleading. It's I mean it's Jordan's production company. Jordan, as you said, you laid out all the reasons why there's it's colored with bias. Um, so when you look at it from that point of view, it's it's tough because you can't if you're grading it as a documentary, it's probably you're not probably not going to grade it too high. Uh, if you're grading it as this source of entertainment that was really just enjoyable to watch and and kill 10 hours, then it was terrific. So I come down kind of halfway in between. I don't really know what my grade would be beyond the uh, the initial three and a half mics that I gave it. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely give it a higher mark than data for a couple of reasons. And I'm, a, I'm acknowledging the criticisms. You know, I, I definitely hear them loud and clear. And you know, the capital J journalist or whatever in me was rubbed, you know, the wrong way at times as we discussed kind of along the way. But first of all, there was a lot of education done with this film and they captivated a lot of people, millions and millions of people, and they're going to re-air it on network TV all summer long on ABC. So they're going to reach even more people who were told the story that I think is a really important story about Michael Jordan, the basketball player, the great moments of his career, his impact on the sport, uh, on its you know finances, on its global spread, and everything else. I mean, to me, that's the most important mission here. If they had lost people because it was too boring, or if it was just too like dense, basketball heavy, maybe that would have been a documentary that I personally preferred. But it it might not have had the same wide reach. And so for that, I give them a lot of credit. I think the also the the central problem here, and you're you're alluding to it with the name, the Last Dance. This is supposed to be a documentary about this ninety seven ninety eight team because they have all this footage from that season. Mm-hmm. The problem, as we found out during game six, you know, especially once Pippen sidelined, Jordan didn't have a lot to work with around him, right? And the documentarians aren't going to be able to squeeze a lot of lemonade out of Judd Bushler and Scott Burrell. I mean, it's they did <laughs> like master's work on the Burrell storyline because, I mean, ultimately, when, when you're watching that team try to generate offense when Pippen's hurt with his back, you just realize like this group was this was not the 2017 Warriors, right? That particular team was not this crazy super team. It was Jordan going to all these different, um, you know, depths of his personal being to like, you know, pull wins out uh, against a pretty tested and and resilient Utah Jazz team. Uh, So this idea that the project was ever really going to be about the whole Bulls squad and that we were going to be getting these detailed profiles of guys like Bill Wennington, I, I just never really fully bought into that. Because well, the story of quick. The, no, just just real, to finish this off, the sure. story of the Bulls, including the '98 Bulls, is the story of Jordan, right? So it has to have some real autobiographical or biographical tendencies. And I think another big strength here was hearing everything in Jordan's voice, uh, because we don't get to hear that a lot. And so, if only from, if we're only judging it based on what Jordan said in front of a camera and how entertaining those moments were and how insightful he was when he wanted to be on the subjects that he wanted to be, I would give this high marks. Of course, I was left wanting some other stuff. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the documentary crew, they, they made the best with the hand what they were dealt, you know, and, and I, I give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, in the last, was it the last episode that went really deep on Steve Kerr? Um, yeah, I think, second to last one. I think yeah, it, was it was episode nine. Two. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you. I thought that that was kind of a strange decision. It's not that I didn't enjoy it at all, but look, we're not spending that much time on Steve Kerr if he's not the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. I think that that's a fair assessment. No, and so like, oh, for I, sure. I 
Yeah, and I would have I would have appreciated more on someone like Tony Kukoc. I know that the whole episode was really devoted to Scottie Pippen, and a whole episode was to Dennis Rodman. But like those guys kind of dipped out of the whole doc after those first episodes. It was like the second episode, and then the third or the fourth one. And so it was like I, I would have liked them sprinkled in a little bit more. I would have liked a lot more about Phil Jackson. I would have liked a lot more about Jerry Reinsdorf. Um, and I guess like. You know, my wife made this really good point. She said, like, in the last, I think it was the last episode, Michael's children are interviewed for basically the first time they make their their debut. And the totality of their insight boils down to what they thought of Utah's crowd noise. (laughs) No, it boils down to the idea that they weren't actually present for Jordan's great moments. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's like we we knew that your your uh, family was, uh, you know, kind of secondary because you're forgetting to call your wife after you win the title one year. But now you've got your kids here, like you're saying, oh, yeah, Utah was a really loud and and crazy place, (laughs) and we weren't allowed to go. Yeah. So from that perspective, it's just, it it comes off as just peak, uh, peak myth-making, peak uh, self-aggrandizing. It's like, it's I I just, I can't use the word document. Like, when I say that, what do you think? When I say that even using the word documentary to describe this project is a little disingenuous. Yeah, it's tricky because, look, I mean, ultimately, these guys conducted hundreds of interviews. They went through thousands of hours of footage. Um, There was a very extensive research process. I thought they stitched together a lot of the narratives quite well and tried to cut, you know, cut all the fat out of certain scenes. And, you know, there's definitely things that we could argue about. I wanted more basketball just like you. And I think a lot of hardcore basketball fans would. Um, And I do think that, you know, if you're going to criticize them for anything, they went for the biggest picture stuff that they felt like would translate to a more general audience a lot. If you want to call that, you know, low hanging fruit, um, you know, of course, uh, the Rodman and Carmen Electra stuff, uh, you know, of course, the Co- the extended Kobe Bryant feature, uh, the, the Steve Kerr kind of soft focus story on him. And I think a lot of those scenes actually worked, but they were trying to expand this past just a basketball story in other words to try to just you know get as much attention and reaction and you know conversation as possible i think that was an intentional decision by kind of everyone involved and that's not necessarily how i would have done it if i was doing a strictly basketball piece right um so documentary i would still use that word just because of the processes that they went through but yes you have to acknowledge like this is um this is athlete sponsored content or athlete generated content i put it into that category i'm not comparing this to ken burns and like the idea that ken burns would even feel the need to like kind of defend the craft to me was a little bit off because it was never in in that uh, in that lane you know i wouldn't even be comparing it to the oj documentary or some of the other you know famous sports doc- hoop dreams you know you never heard me come on here and say oh this is great this is the best thing since hoop dreams like that that's just not the conversation i viewed it almost more like uh, yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, it's like a brainwashing project. And I happen to think that <laughs> I happen to think that people need this brainwashing. I mean, just judging by the Twitter response of basketball fans alone, there is an entire generation of people who don't know this stuff chapter and verse like I do or like other people of my generation do. And so from that standpoint, it's the best basketball story ever told, period. You know, he's the greatest player ever. He had some just ridiculous moments. The final 41 seconds in in game six are completely obscene in in terms of dominating a game and 
uh, changing the course of history through your mental focus and ability. Um, it's a great story, and I do think people need to hear it. Um, now, that being said, it's it's a conflict of interest. It just is to have him be so yeah. heavily involved in telling the story. And I think that's a fair criticism. Let me ask you, um, when your wife is coming at this from a little bit more of a casual fan, and I'm, I'm kind of making this blanket statement of like, they reached a lot of people. Uh, did they keep her attention for all 10 hours? Did she come away thumbs up? You know, if she's Siskel or Ebert, is she thumbs up on this project? Or what was the more casual perspective on just the whole thing? No, she liked it. Um, I think I think that I'll push back a little bit when you said how you kind of well you can wish whatever you want about it, but I I do think that the 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 like the whole point of doing this documentary and the 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 great draw of this team was how it and how Michael Jordan transcended basketball and transcended sports. So I think you you have to do when you do this documentary. Um, and I'm just going to call it that because I don't have any other word for it. Uh, you kind of have to include all that, and you have to get as wide and as broad as possible because it, it, that's why it's worth making. That's what made the '98 Bulls so special. They were, I mean, the, like the Jerry Seinfeld scene where he's in the locker room, just like really crystallizes everything for me. Like he, that Jordan just owned an entire decade of culture, and they kind of hammer that point home at the end with Barack Obama really eloquently. Um, but at the end well, of the day, yeah. Let me, let me clarify. I guess what I'm sure. saying is if I'm Scottie Pippen and in the 10-hour documentary, the only positive things I get to see about my game is about 10 seconds of me guarding Magic Johnson during the 91 finals <laughs> and then five seconds of me dunking on Patrick Ewing and then staring down Spike Lee after we spent five minutes on how I made my teammates cry because I quit on them and after seeing 10 minutes of my back problem and after seeing you know, a whole five minute intro opening about Kobe Bryant, who, you know, had nothing to do with the 97, 98 Bulls, right? So I just, I think there are certain situations there where it's like, they're obviously playing to the crowd and I don't blame them for doing it. I understand exactly why they would do it. Um, it's a, the kind of a judgment decision that I have to make all the time. And when I'm picking columns or, you know, picking stories that I want to write about, is this something that lots and lots of people want to read about? Is this going to transcend just the basketball fans? But I think that, you know, like leaving out almost completely Pippen's impact on the 98 playoff run before you get to the back injury stuff um, is not the most complete and fairest story. And, you know, it, again, it, it, they just had a different priority. They weren't trying to do like the definitive basketball story here. It was more of a, a pop culture type story. No, that's that's entirely fair. Um, I mean, they glossed over so much of the game, the actual... I guess like nuts and bolts of what made so many of those games so memorable to us. And yeah, let me let me ask you on that. Which ones bothered you the most? Because like we got pretty short versions on '92, a pretty short version on '93. They kind of raced through the '91 finals, even because they spent so much time on the Detroit part. Um, and then they dug a little bit deeper into the Sonics because Peyton was so good on camera. And then I thought they really glossed over '97 and '98 from the Utah Jazz side. Which of those stood out to you as like you wanted more on? Was there was there any in particular? Yeah, I think maybe that uh, the first finals against Utah probably was left me wanting. Like I don't really even recall a lot of that. And um, well, I, I think the way I put it in one of my columns was like, if you only watched this documentary, you would have thought that uh, food poisoning and Brian Russell uh, was like the heart 
of the Utah Jazz, right? Yeah, not, not Stockton exactly. and Malone. It's like it's bad pizza and Brian Russell's trash talk is what Jordan had to overcome. No, and I was really looking forward to the flu game uh, episode and how they would cover that. And I mean, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. I thought it was just really uh, like strange, I guess is the word I'm going to use to describe it. I, I, it was captivating for sure. But I did not expect them to spend, and I, probably that's me being naive because, again, Jordan's production company uh, helped co-produce this this uh, production. Um, but I was not expecting them to spend that much time explaining and setting up the flu game. Uh, and I would have liked a little bit, I mean, building up the Utah Jazz and kind of explaining who they were and who, like, my wife had no idea who Jerry Sloan was. And every time they would just cut to, like, Jerry Sloan saying, uh, Jerry Sloan, like, sitting at the podium, a post-game podium at the finals saying something, she'd be like, who is this person? Like, I have, I have yeah. no why idea. Does he come why does off he so, Why does he come off so clueless? He doesn't even know Jordan's sick. And, like, it's there's <laughs> yeah. obviously context that's, like, missing from that. That's just kind of how he coaches and how his perspective is. And he's a Hall of Famer, and he comes off as, like, what do you mean? Like, the dumbest guy in the room. And it's like, eh, this yeah, isn't exactly, bad. not exactly accurate. Um, um can I just say one thing to kind of sum up my feelings? Um, Please. I don't know if you did. You read uh, Wright Thompson's like ridiculously thorough piece about Jordan and his family and uh, his background in ESPN the, the other day. I sure did. It was excellent and highly recommend that one. Um, there's been a few other good things like Jerry Krause's memoir that we talked about on the last podcast. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of good journalism coming out. But uh, continue. So that, yeah, that piece is, I highly recommend to anyone. It was, it's incredible. Uh, I hope Ray Thompson writes a book about Michael Jordan someday. Um, that at the top of that, at the, near the beginning, there's a quote about how Jordan once told Wright that he had a private side and a public side to his personality that split a long time ago. And reading that quote, like totally crystallized how I feel about the documentary and why it disappointed me. Um, in the present day interviews where Jordan's kind of sitting at those anonymous mansions, like for the most part, all we really got, in my opinion, was the public side. And what I thought I was going to get before I watched any of these episodes was a lot or a majority private Jordan, like a Jordan that I've never really seen before. And I just, I walked away from it not feeling like I got the private side. And that's ultimately disappointing to me. A thousand percent. Jerry Brewer uh, for us at the Washington Post had a great column on a similar subject, um, just kind of how elusive Jordan, you know, the actual person is. I think it's the fairest criticism, criticism that's out there. Um, in defense of the documentarians, uh, I believe that this is all Jordan putting up walls, right? It's just certain things that he's mm-hmm. not going to engage with. And that's got to be really frustrating for them, given how much time that they put into it. Um, but I'm not sure that there's any way around it. And I also think we need to zoom back six weeks before we had this documentary. And we need to remember the only time we'd seen Jordan open up at all on anything in the last decade was at Kobe's uh, eulogy, right? Uh, At no other point has he shown us anything of substance uh, from a media standpoint. And so I do think that as we were watching this documentary, I'm not saying you specifically, but just as a general um, body, we shouldn't mm-hmm. take for granted the stuff that he did talk about because like those Isaiah scenes and that Gary Payne scene is just pure money. Him talking about Krauss, him talking about Reinsdorf, 
is just excellent insight that we just haven't gotten from him at any point over the last 10 years. It's basically been a blackout. He did one story with Wright Thompson for his 50th birthday. He did the Hall of Fame speech. And he did the Kobe uh, Memorial. And that's pretty much been it from from big, you know, media visibility standpoint. And so uh, I, I'm sure that's how they justified it. They're like, look, uh, you know, Jordan's not going to want to talk about certain things. But on the stuff that he does want to talk about, he'll be excellent. And that will be enough to carry the day. The people actually really do like the public side a lot. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, I think that presenting that public side to people is really important because a lot of kids, and I used to go in and talk to my mom's like elementary school uh, classes a few years ago. They just know him as the shoe guy. They don't even know that he played basketball, you know, <laughs> like, and it's not like, how would they? They're 11 years old and he's been hiding out in his mansion that he won't even invite camera crews into, you know? So like, how are they supposed to have any connection to him? And so I, that's why I think that this project had um, a lot of value and they deserve a lot of credit for the material that they did get. Um, which uh, went, you know, deeper and more personal and, uh, you know, just more pointed than I expected, right? I just, I, I mean, I, these I were some a, legit rivalries that we got to see play out, right? No, for sure. I have a quick question for you that just popped into my head, and I kind of think I know, I can anticipate where you're going to lean. Um, but what if Jordan basically told the documentarians that, um, you know, they could use all of the background footage. They could talk to whoever they wanted with his blessing, but he was not going to participate in it. Do you think that this would be better or worse? Uh, way worse, uh, personally. Because, uh, first of all, I think... I, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Well, here's, here's why. Because you're not going to be able to get two U.S. presidents and 25 Hall of Famers and all these other people to just do this project and to sit down for you and to welcome you into their home. I mean, I think that... And this is something that I ran into just talking uh, on a smaller scale with Kevin Durant and Rich Kleiman and Showtime recently about their documentary that they had they put out about Prince George's County. And the, the Showtime executive was just like point blank Kevin opens all these doors, right? We can get, we could just call up Victor Oladipo and Quinn Cook and 10 other NBA players and they will do it for Kevin in a way that they're never going to just randomly do it for us at Showtime, right? Um, and, you know, Michael, you and I have dealt with, you know, rejected pitches our entire careers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what's your hit rate on pitch? Like if, if you're getting 20% or 25%, you're feeling pretty good, right? Especially if we're talking about high level players. And in some cases, it's like these guys are so hard to reach, like, you're going to hit zero uh, on some of these guys. And so, you know, Jordan's central involvement in it, and this idea that he was going to tell his story, I think not only was his content excellent, what he brought to the table when he was talking about things he cared about, but um, it opened a lot of doors for these guys, uh, you know, secondarily. And if you just try to do it without them, you're going to get a lot of lip service. You know, I, it's just a lot of people who are treading lightly because they don't want to get on Jordan's bad side. Um, and you know, ultimately you're probably going to be relying on a lot of other media voices to tell that story. And it's just not nearly as entertaining to hear the journalists retell these stories as it is to hear Jordan and Isaiah and Barkley and whoever else, you know, dig into this stuff. No, I see your point. I guess in my hypothetical that I was just conjuring, all those people would still participate and be as forthcoming as possible. I mean, someone like Isaiah is... It's like I don't I don't know when the last time is he even spoke to Michael Jordan, maybe like 30 years ago. So um, 
and he was like so was you want to do a you want to do a hit job isaiah's version of the 90s <laughs> <laughs> which would actually be a great movie i'd watch it for sure yeah, i mean this was basically jordan's version you know hit job of the bad boys so might as well just uh, return the favor <laughs> well let me ask you on this on this uh, question of jordan the person because matthew writes in uh he says Honestly, it's difficult for me to understand why you guys and so many others give Jordan a pass for being a terrible human being. I've heard you call out others for behavior that could be considered less egregious than Jordan's, yet because he was a winner, quote-unquote, and a competitor, quote-unquote, his behavior towards others is okay. This is a person who had a real chance to make a real difference in people's lives, yet chose to be a bully and a generally disappointing human being. Good player, yes. Good person, no. Uh, Michael, I do think that you pushed back a little bit on Jordan's leadership st- uh, style in some previous episodes, but what do you make of uh, Matthew's formulation here, his his presentation of Jordan as somebody who left a lot to be desired and that the myth maybe overshadowed the reality? What do you think? No, I mean, I, I, again, I, I don't disagree with the general sentiment behind this question. I don't glamorize or condone Jordan's behavior, and frankly— am dubious of people who use the word leadership to describe it. Um, But this kind of just goes back to my inherent knowledge about Jordan before I even watched the documentary. Like, we already knew who he was. We already knew he was a brutal teammate who bullied those around him. So to me, it it, it just is what it is. And I don't know how much his personality and his force of nature drive correlates with the success that he had in terms of how he treated people but it would be silly to kind of disregard it entirely out of hand as a as a factor because like the way that he created this pressure-packed environment like a lot of his teammates have testified that yeah that actually did help it did him pushing me and did help me become a better version of myself as a basketball player and like if i could survive a practice with michael jordan then you know game two of the eastern conference finals was like a a breath of fresh air so i think that there was value in that way but like to suggest that this is how he had to be to get this out of his teammates and to have the success he had like i'm a little dubious of of that argument yeah, I agree. Uh, he, I mean, you shouldn't be giving him credit for the quote-unquote leadership. The, the focus needs to be on his basketball ability and the impact of that ability. Every single guy who played with him, and, and including Phil Jackson, his coach, and the organization, the owner, Jerry Krause, everything, all those guys benefited from being in Jordan's halo. You can make a strong argument if Jordan's not pushing Pippen early in his career that he never reaches the same heights that he did. Uh, with the Bulls. All of Chicago's role players, we know them. They continue to have jobs 20 years later, some of them in the media, some other places, uh, in large part because of their relationship and their affiliation uh, with Michael Jordan. Of course, there's going to be hurt feelings along the way. Some of those were uh, expressed, and, and even in other interviews like Horace Grant recently just kind of airing Jordan out, um, you know, th- there's some real brotherly tension and head knocking going on there. There's no question. But Ultimately, all these guys are going to be remembered by basketball history because of Jordan. He's the one who carried them in the in the toughest times. He's the one who built up the Bulls organization basically from scratch. Uh, he didn't do it by himself, uh, and it's important to recognize the the uh, achievements of others. But his singular basketball ability made all of this stuff possible. And ultimately, like he was so good at basketball that people were still willing to put up with all the other stuff 
because he was going to carry them over the top. The the risk reward calculation of of being his teammate was always worth it because he delivered every single time he needed to. And um, that is not to give him a pass on any of the personal stuff, Matthew. But it is to say, like, you know, which ones, which which part of this was more important to the winning, and, and what part should be celebrated, and like. It's just a trickier calculation when you're weighing a guy like, uh, say, a Kobe Bryant or other guys with uh, maybe similar hard-edged leadership tactics where, um, you know, it worked to a point for Kobe, but there was a lot of years there where it just didn't work at all, and it kind of blew up in his face. And uh, in Jordan's case, every single time during the 90s, you know, it worked. <laughs> he was carrying them. Every single one of those series, he was the finals MVP. There was another, never a moment where there was somebody else who was like a better all-around player on the court than he was. And... um you know, and I think that, you know, it's just deeply ingrained into his personality. It's a part of the story that needs to be told. I was glad they brought some of that footage to light. You said that we already knew it. Certainly we did. But if you're trying to tell a lasting story about him over the course of 10 hours, I think the real sin would have been omitting uh, the the meanness to the teammates, right? To oh, try to, to, 100%. To try to yeah. gloss over that stuff would have been, you know, just a bridge way too far. And, um you know, I think they they cataloged some of this stuff pretty thoroughly. You know, I think the Scott Burrell part was very effective as a subplot to realize because we can all kind of identify with, hey, you know, we're this guy, random guy in the office and we have a really demanding boss, right? And we're just trying to get go about our business and be a good person and smile through the day and everything else. You know, we're just kind of that Scott Burrell character. And here's Jordan just making our life miserable day after day after day after day. And ultimately, we all win together. Um, and we're never going to really get the credit for it. He's going to get all the credit for it. That's a tough existence to live. And I, I'm glad they brought that into the uh, documentary. And I don't think the documentary, by the way, gave him a pass on this stuff. I think that they presented it and allowed everybody to sort of uh, reach their own conclusion. Obviously, it was presented in a favorable light. Um, and his defenses of himself got a lot of attention. Um, and, you know, so he got at least That's, got to say his piece. But at least they at least they raised it as an issue. That was the most raw emotionally he got in the whole the whole documentary series, whether he's discussing his gambling addiction, whether he's discussing uh, his father's murder, uh, when he was talking about his own like reason for being the way he is and being so demanding, that's when he started to break down. So obviously it's a huge part of who he is and the story couldn't be told without it. And I, I just want to quickly bring up like, there is an alternate universe where, you know, Phil Jackson is not his coach and Scottie Pippen is not his wingman and he doesn't have all these different strong personalities around him. Like, it, there's an alternate universe where Steve Kerr uh, does not stand up for himself or or a, uh, a proxy for a Steve Kerr character does not stand up for himself and, and Michael Jordan just completely breaks and shatters shatters his ego like so it, it, there is a, there is a, a path where this does not work and he's very fortunate to have uh have played in the situation and in the in the environment that he did with someone who is known as the zen master as his head coach because a lot of people would not have put up with the way he behaved yeah for sure uh we got another quick follow-up question similar topic peter writes from our obsession with all things jordan a lot of people are justifying his bullying behaviors as leadership I think that's overrated. Famously beloved teammates like Curry, Duncan, Magic, and Russell built much more sustainable models of success when compared to leaders that were famously jerks like Jordan, Kobe, 
uh, and Larry Bird, or even more neutral leaders like LeBron, Shaq, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Will Chamberlain. I'm more impressed with a leader that can build a player up to someone that can handle a big moment than someone that bullies uh, their teammates off a team with the excuse that it's some kind of pressure crucible. Peter, I hear what you're saying, but the Bulls were pretty sustainable. I mean, six titles in eight years is no joke. Of course, um, they ran out of gas multiple times. Jordan should be faulted for that. Um, I think he is the ultimate short-term thinker. Um, he's willing to kind of put everything aside, not worry about tomorrow and focus on the mission at hand, uh, and just dive in completely with all his heart and soul and worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. I think that's kind of his philosophy. If you look at the big picture thinking stuff from him, whether it's the long-term planning, whether it's understanding his teammates needs, like a Scotty Pippen there towards the end, uh, whether it is, um, you know, plotting a course for himself after he retires so that he's going to have, you know, a a second career. He's just not that long-term big picture thinker that LeBron is or that some other superstars have been um, because he's just so focused on the next competition, you know, the next 18 holes of golf, uh, you know, the next one-on-one battle, (laughs) you know, whatever it might be. That's just kind of how he views the world. And that's absolutely a flaw that we should point out. Um, but he did make his teammates a lot better. I think that part is, is we cannot be glossed over. And a guy like Curry, you can't say he has a more sustainable model than Jordan when he's not one as much as Jordan. With Tim Duncan, you can absolutely say that is the model of sustainable excellence in the NBA of modern years. But remember, he had an amazing ownership group. He had an amazing coach and amazing front office, right? Those are different dynamics than maybe what Jordan was, uh, was dealing with. Uh, throughout his prime. Um, Magic, kind of a similar deal uh, where, you know, he was just surrounded by greatness kind of at all levels of that organization. And then Bill Russell, it's it's a little tricky with the eras uh, just because, you know, there wasn't <laughs> that many other teams on their level to even push them uh, back in that point. Um, so when you're looking at Peter's breakdown, anything to add on that one, Michael? Um, again, I'm not trying to let Jordan off the hook completely, but uh, I do think that, you know, casting him solely as this negative drag on everybody who's a jerk and he's you know i think that's going too far i yeah i I agree with what you're saying and uh i think there's just so many different variables here when we're trying to see who is successful and who is sustainably successful and I, i think disentangling talent from emotional iq or patience or temperament or whatever uh when talent is just so overwhelmingly great uh in all of the names listed above curry duncan magic lebron Shaq. i mean these are all just like like would they have succeeded regardless of their situation some of them may have so i i i think it's really difficult to kind of separate that talent and that physical ability from the quote-unquote you know leadership qualities that they have or or lacked yeah here's what i'd say too uh if you watch game six the movie that espn put out on wednesday night um Mm -hmm. it's a signature performance from jordan of course and they have great camera angles and close-ups and everything else and what stood out to me from from their presentation is how relatively quiet and non-demonstrative he is on the court during a very high pressure moment where you know, Scotty Pippen leaves, and it's a, a moment where a lot of people would feel very frustrated. And towards the end of the last dance, he mentions how scared he was when Pippen goes out and then he's injured, right? So he's feeling the pressure, he's feeling the heat, and yet he's just got a pretty quiet on-court demeanor. He's not ripping apart Scott Burrell. Here and there, he's giving instructions to a Dennis Rodman or someone like that. But, you know, he's not this crazy maniacal character that we see come through during practices at times. And 
if anything, he's almost calm, cool, and collected, um, sort of like a serial killer. You know, he's just like kind of waiting to pounce uh, <laughs> in that moment. And so, um, I just think it's a little bit too simplistic of a of a presentation. Uh, it's obviously juicier, and and it's more interesting to think of him as this crazy tyrant. And he was at times, no question. But you know, in that big moment with the whole season on the line, the whole career on the line, like he's very calm, orderly. Um, and in complete control of the game action. Every time Chicago needs a bucket, he seems to come through with a three-pointer early in that game to keep them hanging hanging around, not digging the big lead. And then, of course, he just pounces on Malone at the end and, and hits the shot with no timeout um, because he's just you know, orchestrating the game in a way that very few players ever do. And I think if you're this crazy hothead who's screaming at everyone and just constantly upset and, you know, you don't have control of your emotions, uh, you're not going to be able to to run a game uh, like he ran it. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with the Open Floor Podcast. A healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? Eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and then do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Well, maybe that's not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples, too. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen that's only $1,799. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com for the Memorial Day sale. All right, Michael, we got a couple other quick questions here that we want to dive into. Um, Anton writes, watching the last dance show all the drama and legendary gut check moments that the Bulls had to go through to win those championships made me think how completely worthless the Kevin Durant Warriors cakewalk to back-to-back finals was. They just dominated everyone with a team that should have never existed. What do you guys think? What do you think, Michael? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think this is obviously unfair for a variety of reasons. Um, Look, in 2017, the Warriors might have been the best team in NBA history. They stormed through the playoffs. They decimated everyone in their path. They probably should have gone 16-0 and in the playoffs. Um, but then in 2018, they faced genuine adversity uh, in the Western Conference Finals against a Rockets team that was up 3-2 when Chris Paul pulled his hamstring. I mean, KD averaged 30 points per game in that series. He led the Warriors in usage. His true shooting was nearly 60%. Like, he was uh, terrific, and he had to scratch and claw to get out of that series. So uh, I, I don't th- I, I, I think it's—you're it, it, discounting that series and that Rockets team a little bit by saying that there was a cakewalk. There are no cakewalks to championships in the NBA. And, I mean, that's kind of evident by the fact that the KD-Golden State partnership ended after three years and only two titles because sustaining anything so great is next to impossible. Um, And then real quick, I just want to point out about the Bulls. In 95, Chicago traded Will Perdue, who averaged 4.4 points and 13 minutes per game in eight seasons with the Bulls, 
uh, for Dennis Rodman, one of the best rebounders and defenders in the league. So it's not like Jordan was just persevering by himself here. Like he had a significant help in the form of a personnel decision before that second three-peat. Like I, I think that, you know, you could call that a super team in its own right in a little bit, of, in, in, in quite a few ways. So um no, I'm not. I think oh, it's you unfair. Def- you, you definitely could call it because that's what people did before the 2017 yeah. Warriors came along. The 96 Bulls were like the greatest team of all time. And it wasn't just because of Jordan. It was because of uh, the, the nucleus that they had put together, including Coach as well. Um, Anton, look, I've always defended Kevin Durant on his decision and those Warriors teams. Um, you have a point here. And here's here's how I would phrase it. To me, all rings count the same. Every ring matters. No matter how you get it, you get credit for it. And that's going to go, by the way, if they restart this season, Michael. Um, you know, there's, people are going to want to throw the asterisk talk and everything else. Look, I get it. It's going to be different. It's going to feel hollow, probably. It's going to feel weird. But it's still going to count. You get credit for winning the rings. However, what Anton's pointing out is that narrative here matters a lot. And if you're Michael Jordan winning a title on Father's Day and sobbing in the locker room, if you're Michael Jordan gutting through the craziest case of food poisoning anyone's ever heard of to win a title you're going to get a lot of credit for it if you're if you're michael jordan with the greatest last shot moment anyone ever possibly could have imagined where even leonardo dicaprio is saying that was poetic man um it was a great moment just a great moment it's all timer it was amazing might have been my favorite single moment of the entire documentary when jordan screws up the title of the movie i was like cackling to myself that was question did he screw it up on purpose just to kind of punk leo what do you think 100 percent. jordan was showing that he dominated the 90s and there was no one in hollywood that could supersede him that was that was my takeaway my other favorite part of that was that he he tells leo that the all for one, one for all message is what you know inspired him. When <laughs> Jordan is the last person ever to have the three musketeers mentality. Remember when he's telling Tex Winner, "There's an I and win." You know, there's no I and T, yeah. but there's an I and win. <laughs> Something tells me that those two philosophies are not quite in uh, in a complete alignment, uh, Michael. But Anton, your point is the narrative around the Warriors never fully developed. The KD didn't wrap his mind around exactly how that they would be perceived and the warriors you know were already dominant and so they it was the story became that they felt unfair and that's always bothered me i feel like they deserve more credit than they get but i understand it i mean the power of story is a big deal and jordan's a great example of it and those warriors teams are not going to be remembered as fondly as some of jordan's teams and uh, i understand why people feel that way all right michael here's another one for you uh, we talked about some of our favorite MJ years and plays in the past, but Justin wanted to know what's a classic MJ game that you could rewatch for eternity if the pandemic never ends. What do you think? I'm going with the sixth playoff game of his career, 1986. He's 22 years old, inside the Boston Garden against arguably the greatest basketball team of all time. Jordan walks on water for 53 minutes, scores 63 points, and most importantly the Boston Celtics win. So you're, it's a, it's you're a, such a parody, Michael. God, you got to be. It's a, it, yeah, this is a true have your cake and eat it too game for me personally, and I couldn't pick anything else. It, it just I had to go with this one. Are you trying to give me an aneurysm with this pick? <laughs> did you did you seriously think that or were you like how could I get under Ben skin the most? You guy won little, six uh, titles. Yeah. Come on. Oh. A little bit of both. But I mean, hey, that's honestly, when I think about like great offensive performances, 
that's like it's always been either one or two or three in my head so I mean the highlights of him going between the legs along the baseline with Jordan on him like backpedaling like that is just primo iconic basketball footage no, you're right. And look, I went back and watched that game very early on in this whole last dance process, and it holds up so well. It's just ridiculous, the stuff that he was doing. And against the high-level competition like you're, you're mentioning and the fearlessness factor, right? Like we always hear about guys, oh, this is my first real playoff test. Like what did I say all year long, Michael? I don't know how Luka's going to respond when the lights are on. We got to see him do it in the playoffs. It's a legitimate thing to say about these young rising guys. Here's Jordan at Luca's age hanging 63 on Bird in the 86 Celtics. It's just absurd with really very little help at all. Um, it's a great pick. It was definitely on my short list. I considered uh, this game six uh, of the 98 finals for sure. Ultimately, I'm going back, though, to Jordan's 55-point game against the Suns uh, in that 93 finals. I just think that was the, the right moment of his career where everything was peaking. The, the mental side had improved a lot control of the game had improved a lot and his physical skills were just unreal it's amazing to me by the time they get to 97 98 the finals those games have slowed down so much from a pace standpoint and it's so jumper heavy from Jordan he's not getting the basket nearly as often as he did he's not getting to the free throw line um, as easily as he once did and I just think like I put myself in the position of which version of Jordan would I want to have to guard the least? Like who would scare me the most? And that 93 version is just the most terrifying. And so that's why I'm, I'm going for that one. Um, Regicide asks a question. Amidst the middle of an ongoing global pandemic, it felt a little bizarre to hear you guys celebrating Michael Jordan's flu game last week. The athletic accomplishment is not to be denied, but in a post-COVID-19 world, should this actually be seen as a black mark of judgment on Jordan's career? It's not like he was playing through a migraine or something. And then he emailed about an hour later and says, wow, never mind. Apparently he had food poisoning. So um, Regicide, it's a good point because it is a little bit weird to be celebrating a guy if he's like making everyone contagious, sweating all over the basketball. He's sick. And now like Pippen's holding him up. Is Pippen going to get sick? It was a difficult scene to kind of wrap your mind around at the time. Michael, now that we heard Michael Jordan's version and Tim Grover's version of this food poisoning, uh, five guys delivering a pizza late night in, in Utah. Are you buying what they're selling? Is this a, become a fish story? Do you believe the conspiracy theories that maybe he was just drunk or hung over? Maybe he had too many cigars. What do you make of it? What, what's the truth? Are we ever going to know the truth? No, we aren't. I believe that he was sick. It's really difficult to dispute that based on just his disposition on the court when he's walking in with the, you know, he's walking in with the suit and he looks like he's about to pass out. Hey, have um, you ever had food poisoning? Yes, of course. It's absolutely the worst thing that's ever happened to my body. Oh, great. Tell us more. Um, do you, when you when you had food poisoning, do you feel like you looked like Jordan looked in that moment? No, because I, no, I was, every time I've had food poisoning, I've had it a, a few times, I'm in bed and the thought of even like walking anywhere beyond the bathroom a few steps down the hall is just, I can't even comprehend it. So like for him to get dressed in the suit, to walk into this like thundering arena as his children can testify to, to... Not only, like, he, like the idea was that he was just going to be a decoy. Like, 
he's not a decoy. He's the best basketball player in the entire universe that night. Uh, and so I just think it was superhuman. That's it, like to me that performance is just the apex of of Michael Jordan as this legendary figure, and it's what separates him. It encapsulates just why he's who he is and uh, what separates him from everybody else. And if you're like trying to make any comparisons to Michael Jordan with any players that have come after him or before, it's like, oh, did they do they have a flu game story? Like, what is their flu game? Because no, <laughs> no one has a flu game. It's like so. It's let me ask you: If you don't think that he had food poisoning, and we you do think that he was sick, should he have better followed CDC guidelines, like the emailer suggests? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> does that does that diminish it in any way, or are you just rejecting it out of hand and just like you're you're blown away by the will, and you're willing to give him a pass for the germ spreading? Well, I mean, if you have, yeah, no, I don't really, I'm, I'm I don't care about <laughs> it like that, but. Um, I I I want to just say that I think the pizza thing was just really weird and how all the people who are interviewed to talk about that story remember it so vividly and remember like they're all saying pizza pizza pizza. I find it hard to believe just about anything that Tim Grover said in the whole documentary like he comes off as Jordan's guard dog. And then you well, have that, this. That's what I was going to say on that because, like, I don't know if you yeah. remember that Nelly song, Loving Me, where he has like an entire second verse <laughs> and it's all about he's like thanking his boo who will like hide his gun for him and like keep her, his drugs at his grandmother's house. Sure. It's just like she's like the very, like the, the pinnacle of loyalty. Um, I feel like Jordan could do Loving Me remix with Tim Grover as the second verse. It's like, look, if we need a cover story here, like, whatever it is, Grover has got your back. No questions about it, right? The five guys so, delivering the pizza parts where I draw the line. There's no way that's how it played out. Come on. No, and I just really want to say quickly, uh, your apex as a podcaster was that analogy. That was your uh, 55 <laughs> point game. That's as good as I could finals. do. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was great. I really appreciated that. Um, no, the five guys delivering the pizza. The you know we just had a Utah Pizza Hut manager come out and discount this whole story and call it a lie and say that he was a big Michael Jordan fan. Uh, so I just don't believe the pizza thing. I just know that he was sick, and I don't know how he got sick. I do feel like Pizza Hut's motto could be, we didn't try to food poison you intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no shots at Pizza Hut. I'm just kidding. But um, I would never, <laughs> never eat that pizza in a million years these days. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I come down, Michael. I think it's going to be one of those things that we're just never going to know. I've had food poisoning before. I do remember my version of the food poisoning or flu game when I was uh, probably 25 and I got an invite, an unpaid interview to be on a local uh, Fox affiliate in Portland. I, and I, you know, it was like about 20, the studio is about 20 minutes away from my apartment. I had to be driven there. Um, I was ash white. You know, I got in there and it looked like I had like sunscreen on my face once they put the lights on me. Like I looked just like death. I could barely stand up. I'm sure I was like completely incoherent, but I was operating on autopilot and I was really young in my career. So like I just needed to have the exposure, like no matter what it was, like I was saying yes to everything. And I told the guy when I got there, like, look, I got really bad food poisoning last night. I'm sorry. I'm just going to, I didn't want to cancel on you because it's last minute. And like, you know, we're taping this three hours before it's going to air. So I'm here and I'm going to do the best that I can. 
I barely, <laughs> I barely made it out of there standing up. The host guy was thankful, but he was also just like, bro, like you did not need to do that. This is not the NBA finals. Like, what are you thinking? And I remember getting home and just passing out. Like, I, again, I didn't have to drive myself. I didn't have to do anything. So it goes to your point of how he managed, if it was food poisoning or, or even like a bad flu, how he managed to do what he did is, is crazy. And it's, it's superhuman. Um, I don't only want to talk about the Bulls here, though, Michael. I think we should close up here in the last uh, 20 or so minutes with uh, some questions about their foils in these last couple of episodes, because the Pacers got an awful lot of respect from Jordan. You know, he didn't give them the brush-off treatment like he did to so many of the other uh, opponents. It seemed like he was genuinely scared uh, by the the potential of the season ending there in, in 98, or at least they got his attention. And then, of course you see, again, another candidate for the greatest moment of the entire documentary when Jordan and Larry Bird are trash-talking in the hallway after Game 7 and Jordan's dropping uh, uh, you know, a few uh, profanities on him and telling him to go get his golf game ready to go. And Larry is just you know taking it like a, a true competitor that he is and kind of laughing along and understanding this is sort of like what lifelong rivals are going to do. I thought that was just a beautiful moment. But what did you make of Indiana... As you were watching those sequences and hearing Reggie Miller and Jalen Rose describe what was happening, did it take you back to watching that game as a kid? Do you remember that game? And um, what do you think about the Pacers' place in NBA history? First of all, Larry Bird, yes. Uh, best scene in all 10 episodes right there. Uh, a quote we aren't allowed to say, unfortunately, <clears throat> but I would like it sub- a, a subtitled screenshot pressed onto a white hoodie. And uh, I was wondering if someone in the Open Floor Globe could make that for me and send it to me as an early birthday present. That would be terrific. Uh, can't get wow. over that. Loved now, it. Mike, um, Michael, now you're going to make me feel bad. I'm going to have to do this for you. Like, I'm going to, like, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to feel obligated. When's your birthday? August 17th, baby. All right. If you've got a t shirt design shop out there with good discounts that can make me one white hoodie please contact us openfloormail at gmail.com uh, I'll, I'll settle open for a t-shirt openfloormail at gmail.com um what'd you think of the pacers uh great team um game seven is heartbreaking if you go back and rewatch it and this is one of those things where they didn't do the actual game justice in my opinion because jordan was awful in that game first of all and the only reason that they won was I will say that Jordan, you know, Jordan's tenacity on the glass is probably what what kept them afloat. But like, I think he shot. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but he shot. But it, it was a terrible shooting performance. Had a bunch of putbacks. The Pacers just did not rebound and gave up like twenty three offensive rebounds or something absurd like that. So that's why they lost. And I wish that that was just covered a little bit more. I know that that's not the most dramatic way to portray the game, but that's what happened. Um, no Derek McKee sightings either, which was really disappointing for me. I mean, that guy just completely botched the end of that game. Um, going back and rewatching the game itself, I just I, I kind of can't believe that the Pacers lost it. Um, I was also just really disappointed in how Reggie Miller just like like I think he's an all time player and one of the best shooting guards who ever lived. But like in that game as opposed to how he played in the rest of that series, he just like couldn't get the ball. And I guess some of that credit you got to give to Jordan, who was covering him for a good stretch of that, uh, of, of that game seven. But like you just, it, when you think about superstars, 
and all-star caliber wings and scorers like why not just give reggie miller the ball and let him like run a pick and roll like that's what i was screaming for them to do um or just like some type of sequence that could get him an open look and they just like couldn't do it it was so painful so it's just like all these like shots yeah. from like mark jackson and travis best and I, I don't know it was that was really tough to, to swallow well you got to probably put it on the coach there don't you maybe fire the coach michael i mean I gotta say, I also I also absolutely loved Larry's face at the end of Game Four oh, when Reggie yeah, hit classic, that shot. I mean, classic. that is truly psychotic in the most legendary way. Um, so, so good. I mean, and like when you see guys like that, um, I remember with with Damian Lillard before he hit his first shot to beat the Rockets and eliminate them. Um, you know, the Rockets are all celebrating kind of prematurely, like they're getting it. And with the Blazers, there's like kind of a coolness and a calmness in that moment of like, hey, this thing's not over. The true competitors know it's not done until it's zero, 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 right? And that's exactly what you get from from Larry Bird in that moment. Um, a couple of thoughts came back to me watching that series. I remember being irate as a Jordan stan, you know, in my teenage years <laughs> when Reggie hit that turnaround three. Where's the offensive foul? It's a blatant yeah. shove on Jordan. And uh, it's so funny because Jordan gets away with a million of those things. But it's just like, you know, you get transported back into that moment of uh, of just kind of like pure fandom and just being like just yelling at the TV screen. Come on, this is BS. This, is, this can't be how it ends. You can't let the refs decide this. And, you know, of course, Jazz fans for decades have thought you know, Jordan got a million calls against the Jazz in the finals. And um, that part gets, gets un, uh, you know, under-discussed. Um, I also remember having a real conflict of interest, Michael, because Jalen Rose was like my guy, you know, coming up from Michigan basketball, lefty yeah. point guard, kind of wanted to pattern my game after him when I was a teenager. And this idea that Rose is like, you know, doing a little bit of that playmaking stuff that you're wanting to see from Indiana and having it potentially come at Jordan's expense was like watching my parents fight or something. You know, it's like I, I did <laughs> I couldn't really handle it. I, I didn't know exactly which side to come down on. And, and ultimately, of course, I was going to side with Jordan. But um, that, that part was tricky. I do think that watching the Pacers, the, the frustrations that you're describing, um, it makes you kind of wish Reggie was just a modern player, right? It just like came along 20 years later um, because He's I, he was time for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it just like his his numbers would be way better. He would be better in, in a super fast paced system. That era really got slowed down and ugly and. Um, you know, it was kind of a chore to watch some of those games and even just to, like see the team's shot selection. Everything wants to be playing through the post, like on every single possession, you know, with the Bulls and Mark Jackson wants to get into the post too. And um, it's not the, the most beautiful basketball. I will say the strategy from the jump to just post up Tony Kukoc with Dale Davis, like on the first 14 possessions of the game was, I mean, it was working. So it was like <laughs> yeah. tough to, to, to like yell at it, but it was just like, what are you doing? Oh my goodness. It was like very painful to watch. I don't recall basketball being that gross, but yeah, we that just was just so disgusting. We just had no idea back then what it could be. You know, the game was just totally different. It's choppier. Yep. It was you know, much more uh, deliberate. Dustin from Indianapolis writes, he sent this in a long time ago, but he writes, this is the only podcast I listen to and absolutely love the content. Thank you, Dustin. He says, I have heard what seems like a lot of negative talk about the Pacers on your podcast over the years. I started paying attention to basketball when I first moved to Indianapolis. This was during the time of Paul George's emergence as a force in the NBA, the painful departure of Danny Granger. The Pacers had that rivalry with the Heat. Um, and he says, fun fact, my wife is a very loyal Heat fan. 
And he goes on to say, are the Pacers doomed to always being a mediocre team who's just happy to get to the playoffs? I think David West said something to that effect when he left the Pacers to chase titles with the Spurs and then the Warriors. Um, I've also heard you guys say a similar sentiment on a recent podcast. My wife will always have the championship team of the Miami Heat to, to lure over my head. Help me out. Is there any hope? So I guess I want to spin this one for you, Michael, as what about kind of the post-Reggie Pacers? Like, what do you make of that franchise, their kind of approach to, uh, you know, staying consistently good, but never really being great, having a brief window there at, you know, early in Paul George's career where they break through to two conference finals. Uh, I guess you could put them in the very, very good category there. Um, It's a team that has a pretty long basketball history going back to the Mm -hmm. ABA. Um, What do you make about their sort of place just in the overall NBA landscape? Yeah, I mean, they were the Celtics of the ABA. They were this, like, mini dynasty. Um, uh, it's it's like I respect the Pacers. I respect their unwillingness to tank and lose intentionally to draft a, you know, get a top three pick and build around them and do it that way. So I, I, I totally, like, I appreciate how they they are so consistent from year to year and how... They know exactly what they are. They know uh, what culture they they want. They know what the, what players they want to bring into their culture. They know what their culture they want it to be. Um, I would say if they were ever to like get over the hump, so to speak, like they need luck just like any other organization. And even in those Paul George years, you had uh, you know that was supposed to be the Bulls and the Heat going up against each other those years. Derek Rose obviously tore his ACL, which is a, a huge shame. Um, but, like, even now, when you look at the Pacers, just how competent they are, like, you need you need Victor Oladipo to just take another leap and be one of the, like, I don't even know, one of the five best players at his position, one of the four best players at his position. You need him and Malcolm Brogdon to be one of the two or three best backcourts in the league. You got to figure out the the front court situation with Sabonis and Miles Turner, and I think most importantly, you have to play a more. I mean, I, I just praise them for kind of knowing what they are, but I would also like them to play a little bit more analytically friendly, instead of uh, you know shooting threes, instead of mid range jumpers and that sort of thing. So like uh, like God bless T.J. Warren, but I don't know if you're winning a championship with T.J. Warren as one of your uh, primary scoring options. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally respect the Pacers. I, I think it's really difficult as a uh, a small market in the NBA to have any sort of sustainable success, and they have. So hats off to them. Yeah, I would say this. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Kevin Pritchard and uh, Nate McMillan having a second act after their time in Portland. That was sort of when I was first coming up, and you know, those guys are really good people, really smart guys, and they've adjusted kind of to the modern NBA about as well as you possibly can. I think that they're the classic like small business study where, you know, you have to know your strengths and weaknesses, do the competitive balance. What are you going to have that other companies don't have? And they realize just deeply ingrained that they are not Los Angeles. They are not a big market that's going to get the superstar level players. Everything is going to have to come from either internal development uh, savvy trades, savvy, you know, budget contract signings, and you're just going to put together the best team that you can. It's got to be frustrating for the fans because it, there is this sense that they're never going to be able to win a title. It's almost like the NBA has kind of passed them by in the super team era. 
cutting against the grain completely is only going to work if you draft some like number one overall level player mm-hmm. who's going to you know carry you to the promised land and, and for indiana uh they don't want to tank ever they want to play with pride and that's going to prevent them from getting that type of guy and so that's why i guess to the emailer i say um respect your team for its consistency of goodness as opposed to holding their lack of greatness against them because otherwise you could, you're, you're going to be a really frustrated fan you know i don't know what do you what do you think on that like yeah you could be the orlando magic you could be the phoenix suns you could be the sacramento kings or the minnesota timberwolves like i like appreciate winning and being as consistent as they have been and it is a little bit ironic because kevin pritchard is kind of at least to me the one front office member who I most associate with the the phrase uh, treadmill of mediocrity. I think he coined that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I just I agree with everything that you're saying. It is a little frustrating if you want to win a championship, but it could also, also be just so, so much worse than it is. Yeah. And I would say if you're making the playoffs every year and, you know, you're competitive in the first round playoff series, then you're not mediocre. Right. Uh, I think of mediocre as below 500 or like, you know, hovering around 500. And they're generally a little bit above that. Um, And I know that that can get stale for fans and I get it. But, you know, you do have a clear identity. I think the, uh, the other really interesting part to point out on Indiana's side is just kind of the challenges of the roster building. Right. Like when you go back to that 90s group, they had a really nice core, much like some of these other teams that we've talked about, New York, Cleveland, uh, Miami, Chicago, uh, Houston had a core, uh, you know, even Phoenix had a core. Like there was guys you just kind of knew who you were going to face in the playoffs. Of course, Utah's together forever. Um, Indiana had that. And now what you're seeing here over the last couple of years is that their, their uh, success is consistent, right? But it's with new faces constantly. You know, they're bringing, they have to ship out Paul George because he doesn't want to be there. They're bringing in Oladipo. They're making the gamble on Brogdon. They lose Bogdanovich. I mean, the cycle is the is just spinning constantly. Guys coming in, guys coming out, and it's very difficult to keep good teams with no bad years uh, in those kinds of circumstances. And so it's just a completely different challenge than what the Pacers were facing um, in the '90s. And I think it makes it even harder for small market teams to compete for those kinds of players. And so when they're going out there and getting the TJ Warrens and the Jeremy Lambs, or like they're splurging quote unquote on a Malcolm Brogdon, like those are nice moves by their standards. They're not going to win the the headline or the click wars in free agency in terms of, you know, what we're all going to be discussing. You know, we're, we're focused on the Anthony Davis trade and uh, you know, those kinds of moves, but uh, they're doing a very, very nice job around the edges. All right, let's close out with a team and a uh, player in John Stockton, very near and dear to my heart, Michael. Um, <laughs> you've watched episodes nine and 10 now. Um, we got to see a lot of Brian Russell, like I mentioned. We got the the deep conversation about the food poisoning and the flu game. We got an awful lot about Scottie Pippen's back in episode 10. And of course, we got the amazing footage uh, of the, the post-game celebration there after the 98 title. How did you think the Jazz were portrayed uh, in this documentary? And uh, do you think that the lack of a Carl Malone and the lack of a Brian Russell held back this project? It seemed like they pretty much got everybody else they wanted along the way. And you could argue that maybe they should have wanted some different voices at, at various points of this project. But for the most part, they got all the big names. And here was two kind of central figures that just weren't participating. D- did you feel like that undercut uh, the last bits for you, or did you not care as much? I think it did a little bit. I would have liked 
some more well-rounded character development with that team and again just what their style was what they were about i already brought up how jerry sloan isn't really even introduced i mean none of the none of them are really introduced as characters but but i think brian russell is like such a like he would be totally forgotten uh and i i don't mean to be like disrespectful to him but he would be totally forgotten just as so many other retired players are from past eras if it wasn't for that shot so I don't think that the documentary necessarily needed his voice. It would have been it would have been cool, but there are so well, many other players and people yeah. in that organization that they could have sought out and I don't I don't know if they did or not, but there was only Stockton really speaking for everybody. Yeah, here's why I would argue that they need to have his voice. First of all, Jordan calls him out during his Hall of Fame speech, right? And um, there was a little backlash to that at the time. And it's just like, look, if you're going to be framing the entire 97 and 98 finals around one line of trash talk from B- Brian Russell in 1994, <laughs> um, it would be really helpful to have someone besides just Stockton saying like, oh, yeah, Russell was a hard worker. He earned the right to have the biggest defensive assignments. Like, uh, It just felt a little bit slanted too far in Jordan's direction. And I understand why Russell himself wouldn't want to talk because it's just like you're a you know a lamb going to the slaughter, right? You you realize that um, you're probably going to just be set up to not be portrayed very well, and you know that's tricky. And kind of same deal with Malone. I think he's just sick of knowing that he lost to Jordan twice, and that he's always going to be in Jordan's shadow. He doesn't like to really play along and, and do the buddy buddy game stuff, anyways. So I can understand why he wanted to sit this one out. Did you see and, that that footage of of Carl Malone that was been circulating on Twitter the last few days? I did. It was like an E60 interview where he's smoking a cigar. Doesn't really look like he knows how to smoke cigars, uh, Michael. No, I gotta that say. was his first cigar. Yeah. Yeah. And he's basically saying like, Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. I got nothing else to say about him. I'm a man too. And you know, the whole Bulls beat us, not just Jordan. That was great. Having that in the documentary would have made a huge difference to me um, because I think that they got away from... In some cases, not just the Jazz. I think the Suns and the Blazers were other good examples too. They just didn't build the the opponents in the finals up enough. We didn't get to understand why it was such an important deal basketball-wise for Jordan to be able to take these guys down. Stockton to Malone, Hall of Fame duo, uh, you know, number two all-time in scoring, number one all-time in assists and steals from Stockton's standpoint. And you just don't get very much of their basketball story. I was glad they showed Stockton's big three to put... uh, the jazz into the 97 finals and they showed a really nice pass from him and and a big shot um you know during the finals against the bulls at different points but you know part of the problem is you know sloan's not around uh in, in a in a shape to really discuss things and stockton is just not a chest thumper in any way in fact he's quite the opposite so they didn't have a lot of great material probably to work with i mean compare how peyton talks to how stockton talks and you understand the kind of the challenge from the the director's side Sure. Um, but we just needed more and we needed something from Jordan validating those guys, their stars about, you know, something past, Hey, I was annoyed that Carl won MVP because, um, those were battles that took everything out of Jordan and 97, you know, he's almost falling down during the flu game. He's exhausted 98. He's so relieved to have won it. And it almost just barely avoided playing a game seven on the road without a Scotty Pippen. Right. Um, those are big time battles and important moments. And let's hear something about your adversaries. I guess that's my take. No, for sure. Um, you know, SB Nation did a, a project a few weeks back about the the best team that never won the championship. And everybody who saw it was able to vote. And the 
I forget which jazz team won, but it was one of it was either the ninety seven or the ninety eight jazz that won that title. So obviously uh, a, a an extremely good team. You got two Hall of Famers. You've got this incredible coach. You've got years and years and years of like built in chemistry and this like I don't know about you. I, I'm sure it was the same for you, but growing up like the pick and roll was just synonymous with those two, and I would have loved just to get some I mean, even if you're just like hey we want to talk we'll, we'll ask you questions about the pick and roll and your chemistry with john stock i would have loved to hear even just that and just a whole you know five minutes on why those two were so special together it would have been it would have been great a hundred percent and here's my real problem stockton more than any other guy from that era kind of lived and breathed that competitive all I care about is winning. I'm going to, you know, if you're not going to try hard, then you're basically a loser and somebody who I don't even want in my existence. That ethos that Jordan's putting forward throughout this documentary, his philosophy of life and how important competition is, that's Stockton to a T. I mean, this guy is, the, you know, 6'1", 170, plays until he's 40. Doesn't even, he's not a full-time starter until his fourth season in the NBA. Doesn't even make the tournament at Gonzaga. He's just completely off the radar, but he just works and works and works. No shortcuts, physically tough, mentally tough, runs a high-level offense for more than a decade. Uh, He's on the dream team with Jordan. Uh, They wind up going into the Hall of Fame together, kind of coincidentally, the same night. Um, And yet he was just the, you know, he was Jordan's opposite in so many ways. You know, I mean, he's not cool. He's wearing dad shoes. He's got the short, tight shorts. Uh, He's got the super cut haircut. I mean, everything that made Jordan cool, Stockton was sort of the opposite. But deep down, they're two sides of the same coin. These are two ruthless competitors. And Stockton would have had rings if Jordan didn't stand in his way. And I just wanted a moment of sort of validation from Jordan uh, towards a guy like that. I mean, I understand if it's personal between Carl Malone and everything else. Um, you know, okay, maybe you're not going to go bend over backwards and have nice things to say about him. But, you know, just strictly from a competitor standpoint, I, I just wish Jordan had said something there because so many of Stockton's other peers just revere him. I mean, Peyton has said that Stockton is more difficult to guard than Jordan. Charles Barkley's put Stockton in the all-time, you know, top five guys he played against. Magic Johnson said he wanted his sons to play like John Stockton plays basketball. Jason Kidd put Stockton up there with uh, Magic as the greatest point guards of all time. We need some of those voices, I think, um, you know, in that in that conversation about that group. And I understand, you know, with with Malone, it's a little dicier. But I think for Stockton, it's like, you know, build him up a little bit. If you're going to spend all that time on Gary Payton, show Stockton some love. All right, rant over. I was about to say, uh, it's really good that we have you here so that John Stockton doesn't have to speak up for himself. Well, yeah, look, he won't. And my favorite line by anybody <laughs> ever uh, was actually from Chris Webber on the Dan Patrick show saying that John Stockton, he used to bring his teammates into the tunnel so that they could watch John Stockton pull up in his minivan, bring his kids out, and then just bust them on the court. I love that line from Chris Webber because it's true. <laughs> and if you watch Game 6, the movie, Stockton shows up and Bob Costas is doing the pregame, uh, you know, setting the stage. And he's like, oh, here's John Stockton with some family support. And Stockton's like pulling his kids out of this really dorky minivan before he's about to go head to head with Jordan (laughs) uh, in the 98 finals. It's just crazy, man. And uh, look, you know, this this conversation about legacy and and narrative that we're talking about on the last episode, it's going to favor guys who know how to manipulate the media and are really savvy with it. It's going to favor this newer generation. There's no question about it. Let's not forget John Stockton. All right, 
Last question comes in from Mario. He says, Hey guys, it's Mario the Mailman again. I've really enjoyed the reviews of The Last Dance that you guys have been doing. I know you guys were talking about Jordan's flu game against the Utah Jazz uh, in the upcoming episode, and this is a little bit random, but Carl Malone and his wife used to come in and eat at a diner that I worked at during the summer quite often. I never got a chance to talk to him just because I didn't want to bother him and I wanted to give him his privacy, but I did get a chance to cook his food. He got four eggs over medium, two pancakes, and a side of reindeer sausage. He goes, by the way, reindeer sausage is delicious. These are the inside details that we get from the Open Floor Globe, Michael. You're not getting that kind of good information um, anywhere else. Do you have any thoughts on Carl Malone's breakfast order or his appearance uh, in The Last Dance? Uh, All I want is a 10-hour documentary about reindeer sausage. It's really all I've thought about since I read this email, and I really want to try it. I've Google imaged it. It looks absolutely delicious, and um, I can't really fault Carl Malone for eating as much as he did. Did you happen to find out if they have meatless reindeer sausage? Has anyone tried to do like a tofu oh, version Jesus. of the reindeer sausage that maybe I could try uh, or other people like myself? Because I certainly can't go to the diner that Mario was working at and ask for some tofu reindeer sausage because I'm getting kicked out, probably thrown out by my <laughs> shirt, Michael. Um, can I just have one point on Carl Malone? Sure. The fact that he went onto the bus to congratulate Jordan, I never saw that coming in a million years, right? Um, I think that Carl Malone has this reputation as kind of a prickly guy, you know, very standoffish. He's kind of retreated from the the public light. He's had some, you know, off-court allegations that are pretty serious have been made against him. Um, you know, clearly, he had the, the really bad run-in with Kobe and Vanessa Bryant in LA. I mean, there's been a lot of just not flattering stories about Carl Malone. Um, but the idea that here's a guy deep into his 30s, he never gets back to, uh, you know, to the NBA Finals with the Jazz after that point. It's a heartbreaking defeat. Jordan rips out his heart. He obviously doesn't like Jordan, resents Jordan for beating him previously and all the fame and acclaim that Jordan gets. He's had to rus- uh, wrestle with Dennis Rodman. He's kind of always the punchline of those kinds of jokes and everything else. I thought it was very big of him to go shake Jordan's hand. And I also thought maybe they included that footage just to make Isaiah Thomas feel even worse um, for not shaking hands uh, after the Eastern Conference Finals. Because it seems like Jordan's always shaking someone's hands, whether it's Larry Bird, Magic Johnson after the 91 Finals, Carl Malone after the 98 Finals. It was just like little breadcrumbs to just like further aggravate Isaiah. Um, but I thought that was just a very cool moment and also one i'm not sure if that happens in 2020 right just the way that these guys are kind of buffered away from each other it's like if you don't catch guys in the hall or if you don't catch them on the court you're probably not going to catch them at all and this idea that malone went and did that i thought actually spoke pretty well of his character as a basketball player yeah no it was great i you mentioned it in our last episode but i had not seen it yet actually and even just seeing it, like my wife commented, like, wow, I didn't know players did that. And I was like, they don't. <laughs> yeah, they definitely happens. don't, right? Did you have any other favorite moments from that postscape scene? Uh, you know, I described the Leonardo DiCaprio, which apparently Ahmad Rashad has now taken credit for orchestrating that meetup, which I just love. Because, of course, if Ahmad Rashad was put on earth to do anything, um, you know, aside from, you know, having a pretty good football career, it was to orchestrate a post-game meetup between Leo and MJ, right? I mean, that's pretty much his his life goal. But anything else that stood out from their celebrations? 
No, I wish that Ahmad Rashad like organized my bachelor party and was the best man at my wedding. That was another takeaway that I had from well, watching this documentary. He's just such a legend. Careful, because isn't there that famous picture of um, like OJ and Bill Cosby as the best men at Ahmad Rashad's wedding? I did not know that before I said what I said. <laughs> Let that be clear. Um, Counterpoint. <laughs> um, yeah, Michael, okay, we're not going to paint you with that same brush. Um, it looked like a fun time in the hotel room. Would you have had fun in the hotel room if MJ's playing the piano? Oh, yeah, and I thought that he was lying about the piano because they talk about the piano beforehand and then they win the title and they go up and he starts playing whatever he's playing um cigar in hand champagne it's it's terrific this is completely random but i one time with my marriott points i was actually given the presidential suite of a hotel like on a free night uh in cambridge massachusetts and you know, in my mind, I am picturing probably like Hillary Clinton or like some other famous people like actually having that suite, you know, going into town for some rally and being able to get it. So it's like just going through my mind, like all these crazy things. I want to say there was like five bathrooms in this thing and they had crazy bidets and like multiple showers and full like tubs, basically a jacuzzi tub in there. It was wild. I mean, it's definitely bigger. It was bigger than any apartment that I've ever owned in my life. Um, and there was a piano in it. So as soon as Jordan said that he had a piano in his hotel, I was like, oh, yeah, of course he does. It's just the presidential suite because that's how Jordan rolls in 98. That makes <laughs> complete sense. He's not like double bunking with Scott Burrell, right? Like they're going to make sure they have the best possible room for him. So, but when they brought it back, I did not see that coming at all. And when I first heard the reference to the piano, I was like, oh, that's kind of random, but I believe it. And then the way they tied it up was was beautiful. Um, all right, Michael, I think we've run the last dance into the ground. We're going to be back next week. We've got some news on uh, the NBA's return plan starting to form, uh, formalize or firm up here a little bit with a report from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN laying out some tentative timelines that could see the NBA potentially back on the court playing games by mid-July. We will discuss that at the top of next week's episode, dig into the pros and cons, what our worries are, what our excitement levels like and just how we're feeling about you know potentially getting some real basketball to talk about Uh, and we'll definitely take your questions too guys so keep them coming open floor mail at gmail.com open floor mail at gmail.com and look if you've got questions about reindeer sausage we'll take them you know just like mario if you've got questions that aren't about reindeer sausage we're going to take those too michael guys find us on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you get there uh scroll down it will it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word michael's on social media uh on twitter and instagram at michael v is in victor pina i'm on instagram at ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Check out my column on John Stockton this week on the Washington Post. Uh, check out my newsletter for more Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls stuff to read, to buy, um, and, and maybe some other collectibles you might want to be scouring eBay for. I have a nice collection of that stuff for you um, in my newsletter. But Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk to you, Ben.